0: on through 35, this next section that we begin to enter into, um, we, we read about Jacob and the focus is on Jacob and his descendants. And we know that Jacob, later his name will be changed uh, uh, to Israel. I'll speak about that a little bit, but we know that from Jacob, Israel that, that 12 tribes would 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 be uh, birthed, 12 sons, 12 tribes. And 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 we know that from Judah the tribe of Judah, and so we see all this kind of focus and attention, and and so now we're going to be spending a little bit of time focusing and 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 and, and um, learning about about Jacob. But the thing that's interesting, especially in light of the fact, that if you guys have been here on Wednesdays, our verse by verse study on when in Wednesday is through the book of James. And man, there's so many things that we've been going through in the book of James that connects or exact parallels to what we're reading about here in relationship to. The events and the stories that we read about here and, and the lessons that we learn, James writes, James writes about these exact same lessons as part of a practical application to our lives. So we're going to be referencing some of that, but as we look at Jacob, the focus is on him and on the trials that he faced. Jacob went some, through some pretty hard things, and some of those trials that he he, he faced were self-imposed, and others were God God ordained, and and likewise that's true with us. And as, as you know anything about Jacob and his story, you'll see he faced trials with uh, an uncle by the name of Laban, and that guy's a scoundrel, and uh, he is it's he he adds a lot of flavor to to the story. But you would not have wanted to do business with with Laban. And, and then also we see that he faced trials with his brother Esau, and we really saw the, the, the head of that or the foundation or the root of that from what we read last week. And as we read on and study through these next chapters, chapters 28 through 35, we're going to see this refining process that takes place, um, a refining price, a process that God took Jacob through and how God, through these refining process, through these trials, changed Jacob. And, and James actually refers to the trials that we go, to, go through today, as he speaks to us, by labeling them as various trials. And the, if you were here when we studied chapter 1, you know that that word in, in the Greek also translates to the word colorful, these, these multicolored trials that, that we go through, these various trials. And um, we know that as God takes Jacob through this, he's changing him from the deceiver, right? Because that's what his character is defined as or, or, or what his reputation has become known as a result of being a deceiver. As a matter of fact, uh, his name, which, Jacob, which means deceiver or heel catcher, was evident even in his birth as Esau was born first. And it says that Jacob kind of grabbed a hold of his heel and, and, and came out in that, in that manner. And, and so there's these various trials where God changes Jacob from the deceiver into literally we're told, a prince with God. How cool is that? And if you've ever wondered what that, what that name Israel really means, that's what it means, a prince with God, a mighty prince with God. And so God changed Jacob from the deceiver into this, him being a prince with God. And, and in so doing so, as he did that work on the inside of the man, he, like he had done with Abram, and changing his name to Abraham, Jacob's name was changed from Jacob to Israel to reflect the kind of man that God had transformed him to be. And I wish that was true with us as Christians, don't you? You know, because I, I, before my Christ, my life in in Christ, before my faith in Christ, I mean, I was a totally different person. And, and you guys too. You you've become new creations through Christ Jesus, right? And 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 lots of times that name that we that we had while we were unbelievers and following after um, um, the world and 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 running away from Christ is that our our name was attached to somebody who we are not now. Unfortunately, you know our names now aren't still. Um, uh, Uh, seen in a negative light perhaps maybe with some people you haven't seen in a while I don't know but um, because of the new character because of the men and women that God's changed us and created us to be um, um, people know us as someone different even though we have the same name but it would have been really cool to get a new name at that same time where you're like no that's I'm not Sean anymore I don't know we don't know who that guy is he's dead He's dead in Christ, and, and, um, and, and now I live, and live as a new creation in him. But that's kind of the idea, and as we study through these next chapters, and we see this transformation process taking place, it's important for us to look at the work that God did in Jacob, and see these lessons that uh, Jacob was being taught, so that we might learn from them, and, and in doing so, that we may continue to allow for God to refine us, Right? That, God may, that we may allow for God to continue to refine us and to transform us into the men and women that He desires us to be. Remember, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul wrote and he said this, and he said, And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And knowing firsthand how painful and difficult this refining process can be. Paul, the Apostle Paul, who went through great suffering for the name of Christ, he wrote to the Romans about being conformed to the image of Jesus. And he says, in chapter 8 of the book of Romans, verses 28 through 30, he says, and we know that in all things God works for good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now, the Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that, that God will be faithful to complete this work. Amen he'll be faithful to complete this work that he's begun in us. But guys, this morning as we look at the life of Jacob and we begin to study about him, we need to remember that in this process, God calls us to submit to him. In this refining process, in this transformation process, God does the work, but he calls us to submit to him. To, to give him that permission to do this good work in us in order that the Holy Spirit might do his work in us. And consequently... When we act like Jacob sometimes did, or what we see that, that Jacob had done, and we are unwilling in those moments of time where God's refining us to humble ourselves and to submit to God's plan, you know what we can rest in? We can rest assured that, that um, if necessary, God will come and wrestle with us. And, and we'll read about that in, in the weeks coming up, that, that is Jacob resisted God. God said, okay, I'm going to come and I'm going to wrestle with you. And, and, and let me tell you something. You don't want to wrestle with God. But if you're in that spot where you need some wrestling, God's going to come wrestle with you. He's not going to just let you go off in, in your hard-heartedness or in your stubbornness. He's going to come and wrestle with us, and he's going to use the trials that we face to work on us in order to bring us to a place of humility so that he might do the work in us that n- needs to be done. And as we read on now into chapter 28, we see the very first step. There's going to be a process that we're going to go through in the next weeks, but in this chapter, we see the very first step in, in this refining process in Jacob's refining process as God was faithful to begin and complete the work on Jacob that needed to be done. So we, will you follow along with me as I read now chapter 28? It says in verse one, it says, "Then Jacob, or excuse me, then, then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him." And charged him and said to him, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise and go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there, the daughters from from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. And verse 3, may God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may be an assembly of peoples. And give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you, that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob away, and he sent him to Badan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. Verse 6, now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take for himself a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he gave him a charge, saying, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padan Aram. Also Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan, did not please his father. And and specifically what we know is that's in a reference to the wives that he, Esau had already taken. And so it says in verse 9 that Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Naboth, to be his wife in addition to the wives that he had. Now, Jacob went out from Beersheba and he went towards Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at the head at his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. Then verse 12, he dreamed. And behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to the heaven, and there the angel of God, the angels of God, were ascending and descending on it behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father and the God of Isaac, the, the land in which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and the south. And you and in your seed, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you. And will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And really, that's a pretty amazing statement right there, but I think, guys, sometimes we live that way, that the Lord's in this place. And and we lose sight of it. We don't know it. And so in verse 17, it says that he was afraid when he said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head and set it as a pillar. So from a pillow to a pillar. And he poured oil on top of it, and he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of that city had been Luz previously. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God... Will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going, and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. In other words, Jacob was saying, if God truly does keep these promises to me, then, then I will then, then he shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar, verse 22, shall be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Let's pray, Father. I ask now God that you would fill um, this place Lord with your with your presence. we know God that you have been here with us and we know that you are here so I guess Lord really what I'm asking in that is, is that we would be made aware of your presence Lord, thank you for the wonderful time of singing songs of praise and worship to you and Lord we thank you for this time of studying your word and we look forward with hopeful expectation God that you're going to teach us that you're going to make your yourself known to us. So God, that we may um, understand your will for our lives and that we may know our Savior, Jesus Christ, in a more intimate and personal way today. Father, we know that um, you You allow for us to go through times of difficulty, times of suffering, to do that refining process in us. And God, I know many people here are, are, are in the midst of something like that. They're, they're struggling and we're they're finding difficulty. And Lord, I pray that their discouragement this morning, if they're facing any, would be turned into hopeful expectation. That God, that you, that you love them, that you're with them, and that you've made promises to us, Father, that we can hold on to. And Lord, that there's no need for anxiety, fear, or worry, um, because we have, we have the ability, Lord, in knowing that you're in control to have joy and peace no matter what we're going through. So Father, we love you. And, and we, we we profess, again, that you're our Lord and our Savior, and we give to you the rest of our time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys. <clears throat> so as we begin to look at this in in, in the context of what we've been reading, um, we know that even though Isaac was sending his son to take a wife who was not from the land of Canaan, we know from the previous chapter that we've been studying through last week that the, the real underlying reason for sending Jacob away was to avoid the anger of his brother Esau, right? Um, And and Esau had actually said in last week in the chapter that we read that he was going to kill his brother for tricking him out of his birthright blessing. But when Rebecca, uh, the mom, right, when she heard of Esau's intentions to kill Jacob, this is when she went to Isaac. And and she went to Isaac with a complaint. If you remember, she was complaining about about, uh, Esau's, uh, wives, the, the troublemaking wives who had been causing them grief, which one little verse in last week's chapter that we read about, and, and these women, they were, they were Canaanites, and, and she did this at this moment so that Isaac, the father, the, would, would send Jacob away to Padan Aram to take a wife from the daughters of her brother, Rebekah's brother, Laban, rather than a Canaanite wife like Esau had. And in the last verse of of, last week, of, of chapter 27, we're told that Rebekah sought to persuade Isaac. Um, as she sought to persuade Isaac, she spoke of not only the trouble that Esau's wives had been to them, but even questioned to her, to her husband what good her life would be if Jacob were also to take a Canaanite wife. And so there might be a little drama attached to all this, but... Um, when we consider the Canaanite wives of Esau and, and the trouble um, that, that we're told that they're being brought, um, when, we, when, we, when, we, when we consider all of this, once again, I think as we look at this, we need to see that we're confronted with this issue, truly, guys, of being yoked to a person, who was only concerned about the temporal things of this life and not concerned about the spiritual or the eternal things of God. And remember, as we've been contrasting Jacob and Esau together, we see that Esau was just a worldly-minded man. He concerned himself with the temporal things of this life and not the things of God or the eternal or the enduring things. And, and, and that was one of the reasons he went and married these Canaanite wives. And, 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 and the Canaanites being these, these, these um, pagan people, these unbelieving people, we see this connection uh, in, in these things and the trouble that, that, that it brought. And as, as we look at this and as we see Jacob now um, being sent away to take a wife from Abraham's homeland, it should remind us how we as God's people must live differently than those who are of this world. The Bible says to be separate. It doesn't mean to separate yourselves from everybody and isolate yourselves, but it means to live separately. It means to live differently than, than those who are of this world. In addition to that, we also see how we must not, as believers, those who, have, um, who, those who, as the Bible, even as we see with Abraham, are strangers in a strange land, pilgrims and sojourners, as, as, as Peter writes to us in, in his epistles, that, that we must not enter into a covenant agreement with unbelievers. Be an unequal yoked. For when God's people, you and I today who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, God's people, we are spiritually minded. We're eternally minded. And so when we marry unbelievers or make covenants with, with ungodly things as well as ungodly people, it doesn't have to just be a person. We, we can make covenants in our hearts, in our minds, with, with even an ungodly thing in this world. We do it all the time. We do and that's when temptation and sin comes in but but whether it's with an, an unbelieving uh, when we when we when we decide to make a a covenant agreement with an unbeliever in relationship to marriage or or in other aspects perhaps as a business thing or or with with things that are that are of this world that are that are ungodly you know what we can we can we can understand as we read this is that there's going to be trouble there's going to be trouble paul wrote to the church about this in second corinthians and the Corinthian church, they struggled with this. They struggled with this draw to the world. And so Paul, he writes to them and he says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For, for, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common. Now, often when we think about this passage, because it's brought forth so often in the context of, of, of relationships between a man and a woman, it, it, you gotta see that the context of what Paul's writing about here goes well beyond that. It's part of it, but it's more than that. And sometimes I think we make concessions in our mind and in our lifestyles because we we we, we want what we want, or we think that God's ways is not best. But Paul says, Do not be yoked together. With unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? That's a foundation. There's nothing. Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Or what harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And, and, And I don't know about you. That's pretty clear. But I like things kind of more simplified. That's why I like the book of James, because it's just like James is shooting bullseyes after bullseyes, And, and, and it's clear and concise to the point. So I did a little bit more research, and in the Old Testament, this very same principle is simplified in the law when we look at the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 22, verse 10, where it says this, do not plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together. That's pretty good. And, and, and I, I went and I just did a little quick Google search just so you guys know of, of like, okay, I wanna see a picture of a donkey, of, <laughs> of a donkey and, and, and an ox yoked together. And, and, and inevitably, everything I could find is, is the, you saw the, the, the ox trying to do what it was doing, and then the donkey, of course, being different than the ox and not designed for that. It, 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 it would, it, it, the donkey's just like reaching over and kicking the ox. And I'm like, that's a perfect picture. And in light of the absurdity of of can you imagine trying to plow with an ox and a donkey that are yoked together, I think we can really see how much trouble and grief there is in being unequally yoked, how much trouble and grief that would bring. And if you've ever been in any kind of a, a relationship, either with something that is of this world or with someone who is of this world, you know what this means. So as the temple of the living God who, who we, being that temple, have a holy God who clearly walks with us, and lives inside of us, and tells us to pursue holiness, and, to, and tells us to live rightly, that word righteousness or righteously, that just means living in the right way, according to God's word. He says, in the light of all that, we must realize that this, guys, the fruit of being yoked to unholy things or with ungodly people who always lead to grief. And not only grief, but always leads to ungodly compromise. Always. Inevitably. And so Isaac, who charged Jacob here in verse 1 to not take a Canaanite wife, he clearly knew this. He knew this to be true, not only because of the grief that that had come from Esau's wives, but also because of his own father. You remember his father Abraham, for these very same reasons, had taken Rebekah as a wife for him. And so Isaac agreed now to Rebekah's plan to send Jacob to Laban. Now, the sad thing about this, and and you would only know this if you read ahead, but contextually you you kind of bring some of this stuff in. Um, The sad thing about this is that later on we'll find out that Rebekah, In in her mind or in her thinking, she had this plan to to send for her son Jacob and bring him back when Esau's anger relented. We'll be told that. But it did not happen before Rebekah died. And as a result, Jacob never saw his mom again. In light of this, guys, what we see is we see again being revealed to us a weakness in Rebecca's faith. Rebecca loved God. She knew God. But there was a weakness in our faith. See, we love God too. And we want to follow God as well. But as you well know, if you assess yourself, you know there's areas, and we're all different, where, there's, where we struggle, where there's weaknesses in our faith. And, and Rebecca had a weakness in her faith as she struggled with this. Clearly, if Rebecca can be identified in, in, in any kind of negative light, and it's not we're not picking on her, we're just identifying it, but it's that she had a difficulty in waiting on God. And her lack of faith, or her lack of patience, excuse me, in regards to her faith in God, what we see, as we know the whole story, is it, it brought her and her family much heartache. Remember, it had been Rebecca's plan. It was her plan to deceive her husband, Isaac, so that he would give the birthright blessing to Jacob rather than Esau. And God had said that that's what would happen. And in doing so, she she she, she was taking things into her own hands. And in taking things into her own hands, we talked about this in scheming rather than just resting in, 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 in the faith that, that she had and the promises that God had given her. What we see is, is that in taking things to her own hand and not waiting on what God had promised to do, she brought forth this this situation that that they now found themselves in. And even though it was a good idea for Jacob to go, as we read here, and to get himself a Canaanite wife, or or to get a wife who was not a Canaanite, we see that Rebekah, who had determined that it was now time, it's now time for her son to go away, we see that her motive in these verses was fear. Her motive was fear. And she wasn't motivated by the counsel of God. The point is, it's only through faith and patience that we inherit, it sells us, the promises of God. And matter of fact, that's what we're told in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12. So when faith and patience are exercised together, our plans and our ways are set aside. Do you see that? When faith and patience is, is exercised together. Our plans and our ways are then set aside as we trust in and wait on God to bring his plans to pass in a time and in a way that seems right to him. Now, in verses 6 through 9, if we read on through this account, um, there's a little subnote for us. And it says that, that Esau, he's kind of watching these things take place, right? They're taking place before him, and maybe he's standing off at a distance waiting for Jacob to get alone so he can get his hands around his neck. I don't know for sure the scene, but if, if I was Esau, that's probably what I'd be doing. You just wait, little brother, right? But there's a little subnote for us here to consider in, in these next verses, as we're told that when Esau saw that Isaac blessed Jacob, again and sent him away to take a non-Canaanite wife, that that, that Esau, his response was to go to Ishmael, Isaac's brother, Abraham's two sons. And and he went there in order to take another wife for himself because he, according to verse 8, he also saw that his Canaanite wives did not please his father. You know, it's heartbreaking when you see this, isn't it? because you see a son who just wants to be pleasing to his dad he has a desire to do the right thing but esau just doesn't and in light of this it's so sad to see how esau who wanted to to please his father it's sad to see him just to continue to mess things up so badly And remember the ishmaelites were in this very same category of the canaanites according from god's according to god's perspective and the fact that Isaac took another wife who was one of the daughters of Ishmael, what it goes to show us is this, it goes to show us that the, 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 the it shows us this, this the, the spiritual blindness of the worldly man, the spiritual blindness of the natural man. And, and the two are different, There's, but we can be the same we definitely have that natural man, that old nature the Bible talks about that still lives with inside of us, that wars against the spirit, right? And there's this battle going on. So we have the natural man there, but we can also be the worldly man too, right? So it's not necessarily just the unbeliever, although I think that's, that's true, that, that those who have not given their lives to Christ and placed their faith in him, are in a, they're in a spiritual blindness, but there's a spiritual blindness in our own lives too that we're talking about here when we are given over to the things of the world or when the natural man is coming forth. And and we don't understand spiritual things in that state, in that condition. In the Bible in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 in verse fourteen, it tells us that saying the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And see, that's really what boils down to it: is the natural man is doing what he thinks right in his own eyes, and and he knows even what God's word says or what God's will is. But in our natural state, we go, "Dad, you don't know what you're talking about." And and, and really, it says what he says. It says. The, the, the things of God, they're their, their foolishness to him, and that's what we're doing in those moments. He says, and so nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, on our own, guys, or in our natural state, we cannot understand the spiritual ways of God, nor do we, the Bible says, nor do we seek after the things of God. And as a result, when we make a plan, you ever made a plan? James talks about making plans. And he says, you know, it's foolish when you do that. You plan to go here and you plan to go there, right? And you don't even know. Because you're not consulted God. That's basically my paraphrase of it. And, and you don't even know that tomorrow your your, your life is gonna be taken. And, and and so we make a plan at times and we set our feet to a path, and we do so often because we do it in a way that seems right to us. And we even may do it with a good intention in our mind. But when it's done in a worldly way or with worldly understanding or as a result of just natural man that, that lives inside, you know what the Bible is telling us that, that we, when we see here with, with, with Esau in, in relationship to what he's doing is that in those moments, we're only plotting a path that will lead us to sorrow and destruction. Let me make it real applicable here. The point is, apart from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, fortunately, you put your faith in Christ, we receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But apart from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and apart from the leading of the Holy Spirit, and the guiding of the Holy Spirit, and the help from the Holy Spirit, the instruction and, and also, uh, apart from the instruction and the counsel that is found in the Word of God, you know what we do? Foolish things. Apart from the indwelling and the leading of the Holy Spirit and the instruction and the counsel of the Word of God, we do foolish things. And the, and the beginning of our foolishness starts when we, like Esau, rely upon our own wisdom in our own understanding, to accomplish something. And even though this is a natural thing to try and do, we must realize that without prayer, without seeking God before we take action, we risk making things worse and and better. Furthermore, when it comes to seeking guidance and instruction, another direction of foolishness that we can often subscribe to is when we seek instruction and counsel from those who do not have the Spirit of God inside of them or from someone who is not using the Word of God as their means of instruction. In other words, when we go to the so-called intellectual who claims to know the answers to our problems by means of their own education, their own abilities, or their own experiences. And when we go to those people we inevitably find out that their wisdom is foolishness when it bears its fruit or when it is stood next to the counsel and the wisdom of God. You know, and in the book of James in chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, man's wisdom is there contrasted for us to God's wisdom, saying about man's wisdom, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unsp- uh, it is earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil." For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But, guys, the wisdom that comes down from heaven, here's how you know it. It's first of all pure, then peaceable, or peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of grace, and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And let me tell you, just because a person is a believer or professes a believer, it doesn't mean that they're giving you always good counsel. If it's not coming from the Word of God, guys, run away from it. If it's, if it's based in, oh, well, this has been my experience. Now, you can people can share with you their own experiences as long as their experience is rooted in doing what God's Word has said. Lots of... Godly men, including myself, at times have given bad counsel to someone because we've not stopped and prayed and thought about it and used the word of God as the, as the standard by which we encourage or counsel somebody. And we, as the church, are called to do the same thing in discipleship and in mentorship and in, in, in being in a, in a strengthening to the body, as Paul writes about. But we've got to make sure from what well that's coming forth. Is it because we think we're smart and we have learned some things or is it because we go to God's word as the standard or we allow through prayer God to enlighten us which always learns up with his word to, to be that? That's the point. And the point is, is if Esau desired to please his father and to receive a blessing, you know what he should have done? He just should have gone to his dad. Hey dad, what do you think I should do? Or at least he should have followed the, his father's counsel that had already been given to Jacob. There was already a precedence. Likewise, if, we're, if we are seeking to do what is pleasing to our Heavenly Father and ensure that we are living a life that is full of God's blessing, we need to accept the fact that only God's Word is adequate for every area of our lives. And, and more importantly, guys, when we look at the, 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 the fullness of this, more importantly, we need to see that this... That God's word is the standard by which we are evaluated and judged. Do you know that? And this is what I mean. And, and, and I mean because when we stand before God on, on, on that day when, when, when we're all called to give an account for the way that we lived our lives as Christians, you know what the standard by which we're going to be judged? In accordance to God's word. And according to what God says and according to God's ways, not according to what we thought was right or even what others have told us was right. You're not going to get up there and be able to say, well, Scott said I should do this, God. Oh, yeah, we'll bring Scott up here right now. That's that's not how it works. It's according to God's word and according to God's standards and his will and his ways that God said this is what you'll be held accountable to. Furthermore, we cannot forget that our dependency upon the Holy Spirit is necessary. For only through the power, help, and guidance of the Holy Spirit are we able to live rightly. Are we able to live righteous lives, holy lives. And the vehicle, guys, the vehicle by which our dependency on the Holy Spirit is obtained is through prayer. That's the vehicle. And prayer is essential when living a life that is controlled by the Holy Spirit because prayer takes us into the spiritual and beyond the natural. And through prayer, we're able to tap into the wisdom and the understanding of God that will lead us away from those paths of sorrow and destruction to a path that is filled with joy and peace. Now, as we look on past this little, this little subnote here in, in verses 6 through. Through 9, we read on, it says in verse 10, it says, Now Jacob went from Beersheba, and he went toward Haran, and he came to this certain place, and, and, and he stayed the night there because the sun had set. And, and that seems all very, very practical. And as we read on, we're told that when, when Jacob left Beersheba, he went towards Haran. And if you study out on a map, that's about a 70-mile travel between the two. It's not the full distance of what Jacob was going, but the, the in between, which we know later was a place that was called Luz, that would be determined and given a new name by Jacob as, as, as uh, a place of Bethel, we're just told a, a geographical location here between the two. But somewhere along the way, between these two places, um, like I said, that would be later known as Bethel, which means the house of God, um, we see that Jacob um, had, which would become the first of many personal encounters with God. And that's pretty awesome and at this time God in verse 13 if you look there he identifies himself to Jacob as the God of his father Isaac and and of his grandfather is what that means there Abraham. And it's significant. I think it's significant um, that God at this time gave Jacob this vision. This vision of these 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 angels descending and and ascending uh, along with the covenantal promises that had been previously spoken and handed down to Abraham and Isaac. And up to this point, the only knowledge that Isaac has had of them is what had been handed down to him from his father, and which he became a recipient of when he tricked his father or his brother out of the blessing, the birthright blessing. But yet God comes to him and basically is saying, listen, these promises are yours. I've ordained them for you. And as, as as we look at this and see this, um, the thing to notice about this encounter is that these words of promise that God spoke to Jacob at this time were also intended to be words, as we look at the bigger picture, words that would assure and comfort Jacob for the trials and for the testing and for the refining process that God is preparing to take Jacob through. And the fact of the matter is, is, is the things Things were, were going to get very, very difficult for Jacob. They are. They're going to get very difficult for Jacob. And here we see um, God preparing Jacob for what lay ahead. And with these promises to bless, basically is what this boils down to, that God said, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to sustain you, and I'm going to protect you, and I'm going to provide for him. In all this, we see that it's these promises that Jacob would cling to when everything around him would, would, would appear to be hopeless, And in light of this, we should find rest in the fact that our God, too, also will care for us in our times of distress. That's what we see here. In those times when everything seems to be hopeless, God will care for us. He'll come to us. And like God did here for Jacob, he, you know what? He's given to each of us through our faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, promises. Promises that God has certainly spoken individually to our hearts that we cling on to about specific situations, but also, guys, promises for us that can be found in in his word that have been handed down to us from one generation to the next. And, And these promises are things that we hang on to, that we need to hold on to when everything around us looks hopeless. And I don't know about you, but I find it comforting that God still came to Jacob in this moment, and he came to him to, to, to ease his distress, even though Jacob had done many wrong things, and even though Jacob, um, even though the reason behind Jacob having to leave his family and leave his, leave his home was really his own fault. And because of the deceitful things that he had, he had done, he got himself into this situation, but yet God comes to him anyway in grace. And in mercy, and says, Jacob, I got you. I have promises for you. You know, and this reminds me of Psalm 23, verse 4, which tells us tells us that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we can fear no evil. Why? Because God is with us, and his rod of correction and his staff of protection is there to comfort us. And I think it's important for us to understand this because. We've all had those times when we are the reason for why we are having those quote-unquote valley of death experiences, right? Either because of our disobedience or because of just the dumb or foolish things that we've done, according to our own wisdom, in the natural man. And more than likely, there will still be more times like this to come, but like Jacob who began to give praise to God once these assurances came from God, we too can rest assured that our disobedience and our dumb actions don't somehow disqualify us from receiving God's words of comfort or furthermore, God's helping or healing hand in our life. How about you, but, but the enemy likes to come whisper in my ear or my heart that likes to condemn me in those moments that go, look at you, stupid. Look what you've done. Don't call out to God. He ain't going to help you. And you know what you, you do in those moments? Often you just agree, right? You're like, yeah, all right, I don't deserve that. But that's not how our God is. That's not how he is. He's a gracious God. He's a merciful God. He's a patient God. And I love that we see that that nature of our God revealed not only in the New Testament through Jesus Christ, but it's all throughout the Old Testament. I love that because so many people who don't know God and don't know God's word goes, man, I can serve God in the New Testament. I know that God. I love that God. But the God of the Old Testament is just killing people, all, you know, and kill them all kind of thing and let God sort them out. You know, there's, there's a story behind all of that, but truly God is, Our God is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And the same God of the New Testament is the same God of the Old Testament. And he gives to people who do not deserve over and over and over again. And that's us. In fact, this is why Jesus was sent into this sinful and disobedient world. The Bible tells us not to condemn it, Right? For God did not send His Son to condemn the world, but to save the world. He came to heal us, to free us, to comfort us, to console us, to give us, the Bible says, beauty for our ashes and joy in the place of mourning. And in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 3, the ministry of Jesus was prophesied uh, prophesied about these things, saying in verse 1 the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and to open up and 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 the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance to our God to comfort all who mourn to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes and the oil for the joy of mourning, and the garment for praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness. Now, as we spend just a few minutes here and kind of wrapping things up, as we, as we examine these words of comfort which God spoke to Jacob, we see first in verse 13, if you look there, that God promised to give Jacob the land in which, on which he was sleeping. And 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 this promise was a promise of possession, uh, to possess the land that that God had taken him to, and and this had first been given to to Abraham. We know as we've studied through this, and then also specifically to to um, and Isaac. But now God was affirming His promise to His people, not just to Jacob, but to His people through Jacob, and saying that His descendants. W- who who we know would make up these 12 tribes of Israel, that they would be the ones to possess this land. And even though Israel still, the Bible tells us, we know from what the Bible has declared as the boundaries of the borders of the promised land, we know that Israel still has never fully taken possession of of all land. But God has promised, and still to this day, um, um, we know that that Israel does not possess all the, the land, yet but there is coming a day when they will. And if you want to study that, you can go look at the book of Obadiah. And The prophet Obadiah was given these promises as well. And in chapter 17, we read specifically that God through the prophet Obadiah affirmed this, 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 them taking full possession of land, saying one day that Israel will, quote unquote, possess all of her possessions. You know what that means? That means there's no place for a two-state nation. I don't care what president or any world power says needs to happen. God's already ordained it, that Israel will be the sole possessor of all the land that he has ordained for them and promised to them. Now, as God spoke of the land, it's also important to notice that God also spoke um, about Jacob's descendants. And, and and this is cool because God's mention of Jacob's descendants, um, there in verse 14 think about it. If, if you're Jacob, you're fleeing, right? Yeah, you're going to get a wife, but you're really leaving because your brother, who you've deceived, is says he's going to kill you. And we, we get kind of a picture of, of Jacob. He was a mild man, the, said, the Bible said. And his brother, his brother was a man of the field who went out and shot and killed things and ate them. Yeah. And, and so, so if you're Jacob, You're probably looking over your shoulder as you're making your way, right? Just saying. But think about this when God comes to him and says, you know I'm making these promises to you and your descendants. There's an assurance in this. You know, it's an assurance that not only would Jacob, in fact, find a wife because you need to have a wife in order to have descendants, right? But also an assurance that his brother wasn't going to get him he wasn't going to be killed by his brother. However, guys, the best words of comfort are the words that are found in verse 15. I think these words that, that God spoke that assured Jacob of the fact that God would always be present with him. More important for us to see is that these promise, this promise to not leave Jacob was wonderfully tied to God's words of assurance that, 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 that told Jacob that he now had a plan for his life. And that God would see to it that his plan was fulfilled. And even though Jacob was to have many hard years ahead of him, where he, again, certainly he clung to this time, to this moment, to these things, to this place where he set up a pillar of remembrance with the stone that had been by his head, and, and even though many of these hard things would come, even as a result of the consequences of his own sins, God's promise was to be with Jacob at all times and all places to keep him and to restore him and to complete the work in him that he had begun. And God has given us the same promises the Bible tells us. God's given to us the same promises promises, the Bible tells us, through His Son, Jesus. And this is what's being declared to us in passages like Galatians chapter 3, verses 13-14, through 14, when it says these kinds of things. There's many of them like them, but here it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And He redeemed us, it says, in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles, us, through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise, promise of the Spirit. Now, these, these, these promises to provide and to protect and to be with Jacob had obviously had an impact on Jacob. We can see that from his response. And clearly he was in awe as a result of this encounter. And he says some pretty wonderful things, but the 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 the, the most wondrous thing was not the promises that had been spoken to Jacob, but the fact that God had revealed himself to Jacob and that God had personally come and spoken to him as he had done with his father Isaac and with his grandfather Abraham. To speak to God, to see God, to know God. Likewise, greater than Guys, these promises that we've come to be partakers of is the fact that you and I, we, because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we now serve a God who desires an intimate relationship with us, a personal relationship with us, an individual relationship with us, a God who is with us, a God who knows us, and a God who desires for us to know Him. And so, He makes Himself known to us. And often it's it's an experiential way, not just through his word, which is awesome. But God says, experience me and know me. And when Jacob realized this, he said in verse 16, listen, he says there, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. The worship team wants to come up, we're going to end with this. Surely God, the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. Guys, that's so important because how many times in your own life have you been in a spot and been in a situation where it's real difficult, where it's real hard, where we as Christians have coined it as those desert, dry times where, where's God? Where's God? And God's gone nowhere. God's always been there. But yet we, like Jacob, because of our circumstances, because of the discouragement, because of our own carnal, natural man who can't understand or discern the spiritual things of God in a moment, it's, 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 it's that we just didn't know that God was there. And usually, as you've all experienced, it's when we get on the other side, sometimes we look back and we go, wow, God was always there. He never left me. He never forsook me. The Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Jacob said. But then, if you look there, being aware of God's presence... It says in verse 17 that Jacob then was afraid. In light of this, we need not forget that we serve a God who is with us. Can't forget that. Don't forget that we serve a God who is always with us. And, and you don't want to forget this, not just because we may be caught, or caught in the act of doing something we shouldn't be doing, right? It's like, oh, dang, God saw that. And fear comes upon you. I mean, there's a a healthy fear. There's there's a good thing in that, but that's not the only reason why. But also, guys, for this, we cannot forget that we serve a God who is with us because when we forget that God is with us, we miss out on that daily opportunity, that moment-to-moment opportunity to fellowship with our Heavenly Father who loves us, who is always wanting and waiting to spend time with us. Father, thank you God for this time. Thank you, God for these reminders and these encouragements that you are God who is with us. You are God who desires to know us. You are a God that is greater than our failures, <coughs> our rebellion and our foolishness. That you, Lord, are doing a good work in us. Are be thankful for the, the work that you did on the cross. And as we know, God, that you're working on us today to work in us so that you might work through us, Father, I pray, God, that these words that we read and the conviction from your Holy Spirit will bring us back, God, to those places where we would give ourselves fully over to you. God, even if it means that we've set ourselves on a path that that has seemed right to us and you've revealed to us that it's foolishness, God, that we would do the U-turn, that we would repent and forsake that, God, at all costs, and come back to You. Lord, give us the strength by Your Holy Spirit to do these things and to know the right path to travel on. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.